All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 12, please. Last week we looked together at what it is to understand that Jesus is our greatest treasure, that he is the all in all. And we saw how, just like that vase that that couple in Birmingham had discarded and not understood that it was worth so much money, how we can do the same, but how Jesus really is our greatest treasure and wants to be our greatest treasure. And this text, although not initially obvious, is completely linked with that one before it. Mark hasn't put it here by accident. Jesus hasn't played this out by accident. The two are linked. So today's title is The Saviour's Delighted Gaze. And look with me at Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through to 44. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, And like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they are all contributing out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I'm aware of how much I need you today. Lord, this is a difficult topic, a taboo topic. But your word is alive and powerful. And your voice, Lord, we always need to be attentive to. You've got something to teach us. For your glory and our good, you've got something to teach us. So would we have ears to hear in your precious name. Amen. You know, this gospel, the gospel of Mark, really is a a wonderful book, isn't it? We've only got about 10 messages left in it. So if you're wondering how long we're still going to be in it, ah, about 10 more weeks. after We won't actually get back to it until around March next year because we'll do most of the rest at Easter next year. But it really is an incredible book. The first eight chapters, the big question in the gospel is, who is this Jesus? Who is this one that is being paraded before us time and time again? And Mark helps us see his authority in his teaching. How when he teaches and opens his mouth and preaches in the synagogue, people are astonished. They're amazed. They can't believe it. He, he preaches with such authority. We see his authority over demons as he casts demons out of people and they respond. We see his authority over sickness as he heals people again and again and again. We see his authority over nature as he calms the storm, as he feeds the 5,000 and then as he feeds the 4,000 and walks on water. And we see his authority over death as he takes the hand of Jairus' daughter and they're all weeping because they know she's dead. He says, no, she's just sleeping. And he takes her hand and lifts her and raises her to life again. 
Time and time again, then in the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, the emphasis is, who is this Jesus? And what Mark wants to help us see all the way from chapter 1, verse 1, is this is the Christ, the Son of God. This is the one the whole world has been waiting for. This is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's Peter, in chapter 8, that in part starts to declare that to be true. He never says he's the Son of God, but he does say, I know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And so from chapters 8 through 12 then, all that we've been studying thus far, the main question is, what has he come to do? We've established who he is, but what then has he come to do? Well, Peter and all the disciples are are straight away thinking, well, I know what he's come to do. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. So he's come to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem. He's come to take his seat in the temple, and he's going to make Israel great again. He's going to help us rule the nations and not sit under occupation of any other nation. That's what he's come to do. And yet Jesus explains, listen, I haven't come to do that. The Messiah was never going to come to do that. The Messiah was coming to give his life away as a ransom for many. And so Mark chapter 8, verse 31, we read, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days will rise again. So eight chapters, who is he? For the next eight chapters, what has he come to do? What is this Messiah come to achieve, namely to give his life away as a ransom for many? And yet if we're paying attention throughout the gospel, throughout the entirety of this book, a sub-question that's been running all the way through is what does it really mean to follow Jesus as your king? What does it really mean to follow him as your Lord? What does it really mean to, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, to follow him and trust him? What does it mean to entrust your life to somebody who really does walk on water and who really can feed the 5,000 and the 4,000 and really can still the storm? What does it mean to really take up your cross and follow him in your life? What does it really mean to treasure him? To allow him, by the grace of God, to have the steering wheel of your life. Not just get in the back seat, as we so often think is what it is in in Western Christianity. Oh, I love Jesus. Oh, he's amazing. I can get to heaven through Jesus. Get in the back. And if I need you, I'll turn around and ask you a few questions. And in the Gospel of Mark, what Jesus is helping to see is, no, no, if you're going to take me as your Savior, you've got to take me as your King, which means I'm driving your car. And he talks to us through it. If we're paying attention, you realize this is the subplot all the way through. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it really mean to truly treasure him in each and every area of our lives? Well, Jesus then in this chapter hits on something that I think is one of the most sensitive things to us in Western Christianity, and it's our money. Because right here, he talks to us about what it really means to follow him when it comes to our money. What does it really mean to bow our knee to him as the king and lord of our lives when it comes to our finances and our stuff? Now listen, as a pastor and as an English pastor, for me personally, I can think of no topic more awkward than this one. 
I hate preaching on money. I don't think to myself, oh, it's my birthday. Oh, wonderful, I get to preach on money today. You know, that's not the first thing that I think about. I find this topic difficult. I find it awkward. I think Australia is very similar to the UK. It is a taboo topic. Because people are quite happy to talk about everything. But very rarely are they rocking up at growth groups saying, hey, can we talk about money tonight? It's never happened in my group in 16 years. It's a private topic. People want to pull it in and have this part of their lives just between them and Jesus. This is a Jesus and me. I don't want to be discussing it with you. And yet to Jesus, we have to understand to Jesus, this topic wasn't difficult or awkward or taboo at all. Because for Jesus, this topic was just oh so important. See, when you study the Gospels, it's important to note that Jesus talks about more, more about money than heaven and hell combined. In the Gospel of Luke, there are 39 parables. 11 of them relate to money and the way we deal with money as Christians. If you study the Gospel of Luke, do this when you go home. If you've got nothing else to do. If you study the Gospel of Luke and read it all the way through, every one and seven verses has something to do with money. To Jesus, this wasn't a difficult topic. This wasn't a taboo topic. To Jesus, he knew full well, if there's one thing in particular that will pull you away from truly treasuring me, it will be money. And so he tells us in Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can have two masters, for you cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is always after our hearts. He always wants our hearts. He wants us to ensure that he really is the king of our lives, our greatest treasure. But he knows money will try and be that to you. That will try and divert your attention away from me. And so he tells us in Matthew 6, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your wallet is, wherever your money is, there your heart will be also. It's no accident then that he's just talked to us through the whole premise of whose son is the Christ, about ensuring that he is our greatest treasure. It's no accident then that having just done that, he's now talking about the treasure that's in our back pocket. They're linked. They're always linked. There are over 800 references to money all the way through the Bible, and they all have to do with giving it to the God, allowing him to have our heart in all of our lives. And so here's what happens today. Today... In the life of Jesus, he takes up his seat opposite the temple treasury. Now, it has been a long day for Jesus. He's just been battling and receiving questions from the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Pharisees and the scribes. He then had one very important question for them. He's exhausted. But his day isn't finished. He walks with his disciples to the outer courts of the temple. Actually, the women's outer courts, where women and children could worship God as well. And he takes his seat, and he starts to look at the treasury right in front of him. This place where there would be 13 um, bronze, inverted horns actually, so you'd put the money in the top and it would come out to a big pit at the bottom. 13 huge offering boxes. And he takes his seat because there's somebody there he wants us to meet. There's a young widow, a poor widow, that he wants to draw our attention today as he teaches us what it really means to follow him when it comes to our money. And what we have here then is a wonderful picture of giving that pleases the Savior. 
See, in verse 43, as he gathers the disciples around him, we have to understand we're in that picture. Jesus to you and I today is saying, hey, listen, whoa, come and take a seat with me. There's somebody I want to show you. Somebody that will change your life. Somebody that will inform you and teach you what it means to really follow me as king when it comes to your finances. So come and sit down. Take a seat. Let's watch her. And so, what does it all mean? What does it all mean to follow Jesus when it comes to our money? Well, there's two points this morning. Only two things. Bad news for you and me is they're incredibly provoking things, difficult things, and challenging things. This is not going to be one of those messages where you're going to be carrying me aloft at the end. But that's not my job. My job is to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ and represent him. So what does it all mean? What does it all mean to follow Jesus when it comes to our money? Well, number one, it means understanding in mind and in deed that giving that pleases the Savior is worship. It means understanding in mind and in deed what we actually do, that giving that pleases the Savior is worship. See, so often we think of singing and singing alone as worship, don't we? We even used to call it, particularly when I was younger, a time of worship. So you just think, oh, yes, I worship. Oh, yes, it's at least 30 minutes a week. It's so long. And yet singing is worship, but worship is far more than just singing, okay? Worship is all of our lives. So Romans 12, verse 1, we read, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Why? For this is your spiritual act of worship. Do you see that? Worship is not just what we do on a Sunday. Worship is all of life. Worship is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It is offering our entire lives to the Lord as living sacrifices to him. Understanding that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, it's all for the glory of the Lord. Just like John the Baptist, I must decrease, you must increase. You are my king. You are the one I'm following. So whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do it all for your glory. This widow got that. She gets it. She understands my whole life is about the Lord. And yet by way of backdrop, It is evident and clear that many people didn't get that. They didn't understand that worship is all of life, and they didn't understand that worship is all about him. And Mark then very carefully introduces us to two different sets of groups who don't get it. The first of them is the scribes, verses verses 38 through 40. See, they were worshippers, all right, but here's who they were worshipping themselves. They thought that all of this life was primarily all about them, that they were the center of the universe, they were the center of the world. And so what we see is a despicable, a despicable exhortation about what they're really like. Look again at verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Well, why? Now, here's why. He would like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. And have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts 
who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. See, in a nutshell, these scribes thought that all of life was all about them. They are the center of the world. And so he gives us that list of what they're like. They like to walk around in long robes. You know, normal Jewish dress in this period of time, normal Palestinian dress, was really bright colored. So they all wore very bright colors all the time. But not with the scribes. They wear bleached white long robes. They want to stand out. They want to be marked out as different. Hybert in his commentary says these robes would be all about piety and scholarship. So they were. They wanted to dress very differently to everybody else to show I am very holy and I am very clever and you are not. That was their whole attitude all the time. They wanted to dress in such a way that would be, hey, look at me. Check me out. I'm better than you. I'm somebody you should be impressed by. And they also liked, as we read, to be greeted in the marketplaces. Now, at first glance, you think, well, I think we all like, to, we all like that, don't we? Hello, Dave, how are you going? You know, that's nice. That's not what this means. Here's what they liked. Here's what actually happened. As these scribes walked through the marketplaces in their long white robes, people were forced to stop, to stand in front of them, and to address them as either rabbi, father, or master. And so you're walking through the marketplace and everybody's standing to their feet, yes sir, yes sir, master, father, hello father. And these guys love it. That's why it uses the word liked. They liked this. They liked the attention. They liked the accolade. They wanted it. In the synagogues then, they had the best seats in the house. They would sit in the ultimate place of honor. You know what that would mean? It means they were sitting right here. Okay, so if we actually were the synagogue, behind me would be a chest with the Torah in. The scribes would be sitting here in their long robes and they're looking at you. They hope you see you're not very good, but I really am. That was what they wanted. They wanted you to worship them. They wanted your attention. They wanted this world to be all about them. They took places of honor at the feasts. This deference towards these scribes didn't just happen in the synagogue. It happened in social gatherings as well. So for Christmas, birthdays, feasts, everybody wanted the scribes there. They wanted them to sit at their right and their left to show people, hey, I've got friends. I've got powerful friends. These guys are amazing. They're like me. They've come to my party. The scribes love it. It was reported that even family members were pushed to the side. Elderly were pushed to the side. Wives were pushed to the side so the scribes could take their seat at the host right and left. And to make all this possible, the scribes would devour widows' houses. They were there to serve the poor and needy. And it is clear in the way they operated, they devoured widows' houses. They took advantage of widows. They asked widows to pay in on things they were doing, to fund different things that they wanted and felt that they needed. They were taking advantage of all those that were vulnerable. And when they prayed for them, not only the widows but all people, they did it for a pretense. They were meant before the Lord to be laying hands on people and praying that the Father would bless them. But instead they would go on and on and on to draw attention to themselves. Because prayer for them was about them. It's okay to pray long, okay? The issue was, why are they praying long? They were doing it for attention. They wanted to be worshipped. These scribes were despicable. 
They thought of life as all about them. And that is why, verse 40, they will receive the greater condemnation. They were there to serve God's people, but in reality they felt as if you should be there to serve me. This is all about me. I want your attention. I want your gaze. They were obsessed with power and pride and greed. They wanted it all. What a strong statement against them, don't you think? They weren't there to worship God. They were there to be worshipped. And then we're introduced to another group of people that, that Jesus wants to bring our attention to when it comes to another group that simply doesn't understand what worship really is. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Okay, now the way this is written, and in the context this is written, those rich people, he's talking about it in a real negative here. This isn't a good thing. Well, so what was not good about this? We have to understand the context and the culture at the time. As Jesus takes up his seat opposite the treasury this day, he's waiting for a poor widow to come so he can draw attention to her. But prior to her arrival, many rich people are coming. Nothing wrong with being rich, right? We are all rich. Seriously. Everybody in the room is rich. That's why we live here. The fact that we live here and have a car, we're in the, in the wealthiest people in the world. Well, these rich people suck. Because when these rich people come to give, they're obviously rich by the way they dress, by the way they look. It is obvious to people. But when they are gathering with their money, these coins that they are going to drop into these bronze offering baskets, here's how they're coming in. They're walking in. They're not carrying anything because their servants are doing that. Their servants are carrying big pots of money with them. And they're probably, you know, you can just imagine, this is what they're doing on the way in. Hi, guys. All right. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Is that money box heavy there? Yes, it is. Okay, well, come on in, guys. Uh, Coming through, money coming through. That's what's going on there. That's what Jesus is seeing. And then as these guys are offering all this money, you can just imagine the noise. Ching, 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 ching. And you can just imagine the guys just going, yes. Oh, it's been a good year for us. God has blessed us. It's just this pride and arrogance of, look at me. Look at all that I'm giving. Isn't this impressive to you? The actual treasurer of the temple was often also so corrupt that when it came to rich people, they would announce how much they're giving. Yes, well done, Riley Spring, ten and a half thousand dollars in small change. Everybody look. And Jesus hates it. He's sitting there and he sees these scribes around him where they don't get it. This isn't worship. Their lives aren't worship. Their lives aren't living sacrifices to the Lord. Far from it. Their lives are all about their attention. These rich people, they don't get it. Their giving is at best mixed. And then, there's a poor widow that begins to approach. Quietly. No servants around her. And Jesus catches her eye. She's obviously poor by the way she dresses. Widows had no money, so the the clothing would be in tatters. And Jesus is aware that she's carrying in her hands two small copper coins, 
Two lepters, tiny, tiny coins, the tiniest coins you could get in Roman culture. Worth like a penny. One thirtieth of a cent. And yet it's all she has. And she takes it quietly, no fanfare, no servants. And she takes everything she's got and puts it in. And then quietly leaves. In stark contrast to everything that has come before, she quietly comes up and gives these two small copper coins. And what is evident is the Savior is delighted with her. That's why he calls the disciples in. Everybody, everybody, come here. Look, look. Why? Because that is worship. Quiet, sacrificial, generous, faithful worship to God. No fanfare, no servants, but quiet, sacrificial, faithful giving for the audience of one. Kent Hughes says it this way in his commentary. He says, The Passover crowd had been ooing and ahhing over the magnificence of the rich, and yet Jesus had remained unmoved. But when the widow passed by and gave, though he sat still, he was inwardly on his feet clapping. She was a rare flower in the desert of genuine devotion, and her beauty made his heart rejoice. Isn't that beautiful? Scribes, they're not interested in the Lord, not really. They're interested in attention for themselves. The rich, they're not too interested either. Look at me, look at me, what I'm giving everybody, check me out. The widow, quietly coming and giving everything she's got and putting it in. And Jesus says, that's, look at that. Everybody, look at that. See, giving in the Bible was always meant to be worship. All the way through, from start to finish, giving is always related to worship. And so in Psalm chapter 50, verses 10 through 12, we read, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves in the fields is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Everything is the Lord's. Everything that is owned is ultimately owned by God. And that's a refrain that is repeated through the Psalms again and again and again. The whole premise is everything that you have is yours. I mean, one of the things you teach, you don't even have to teach a kid when they're young, is the word mine. Do you know what I'm saying? And you never grow out of it. Well, that's mine. That's my, yes, it's my house, it's my car, it's my stuff. What's it got to do with you? Here's what it's got to do with you. It's not yours. It's God's. Everything is the Lord's. He owns everything. Ultimately, all the treasures that we think of as ours are ultimately His. It's something that's put through the entire of God's Word. Well, it was Abraham then in Genesis chapter 14 that first instituted the tithe. The practice of giving the first fruits of the Lord, literally 10% that he wanted to give to the Lord. And so in Genesis chapter 14, predating the law, he sought to give to Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God, 10%, the first fruits of all that the Father had blessed him with, he wanted to give back to him. 
In Leviticus and Deuteronomy then, this practice was formalized in the law of Moses and in the form of giving to the temple. So people would come, just like this widow, and they would give the first fruits of all that they have back to the temple for the maintenance of the temple and for the care of the Levites and the priests who served there in a full-time way. And for hundreds of years, that's what happened. People gave their first fruits into the temple. Well, then Jesus changes the temple, doesn't he? Jesus replaces the temple with his own body. He makes it clear that I am now the temple. I am where you're going to encounter God. I am the one through whom worship is going to be possible. And so in the New Testament then, you see this practice of giving remaining, but people are no longer giving to the temple, they're giving to their local churches, where every tribe and language and nation is gathered with pastors and leaders and apostles. People start to give to them, start to lay their money down at the apostles' and the elders' feet for the building up of the local church. Just like with the temple, ultimately, to care for the needs of the, of the church, to care for the needs of individuals in the church, to care for the support of the church's leaders so they can devote themselves to building and serving the church and to care for those beyond their walls as well, the needs of people beyond the local church. So you see in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, you see um, Paul encouraging the Corinthians in their giving, but he's talking about the Macedonians who were so poor in reality, but gave according to their means and then beyond their means because they just want to play a part in caring for the poor in Jerusalem. So they're taking up offerings in all these different churches so they can help one another across the globe. And so that so often they can partner with men like Paul to allow gospel churches to be built around the globe. And so all the way through when we see giving, all the way through the Bible, we see it as worship to the Lord. And we see it with this widow as well. Do you honestly think those two copper coins made an epic difference in the history of the temple? No. And yet Jesus Jesus points her out as our example. Look at her. It's quiet. It's faithful. Sacrificial. It's generous. It's worship. Scribes, not worship. The rich, not worship. They're still drawing attention to themselves. This widow, disciples, gather around. Object lesson. The widow understands that it is worship. Listen, I can see by your faces you're distinctly uncomfortable. You want to live it for three days. Here's the questions, though. You must consider before the Lord. How do you think about your giving. What do you think about it? As you have an opportunity each and every week of your lives to give, whether that be through the offering basket on a Sunday, or whether that be through online in the week, how do you think about it? Listen, are you aware that the Savior's eyes that are sitting opposite the treasury this day are now on you? Are you aware of that? Are you aware that when you set up that direct debit and it goes into the bank account, the Westpac treasury, that Jesus is watching, preparing to reward you, preparing to help you? Do you then take the time and seek to give in a quiet and faithful and sacrificial way to him? That's our opportunity.
to be like the widow. We've got to seize it. Giving in the Bible is always worship. It's an overflow of our hearts. It's an overflow of our love for him that we recognize all that I have is yours. Everything is yours. Lord, you have blessed me beyond measure, so who am I to keep it all? And so I faithfully give to you now for the building up of the local church, for people's needs, for partnering with people who are in the gospel around the globe. Lord, I give back to you all that you've blessed me with. Use it for your glory. So what does it really mean to follow Jesus when it comes to our money? Well, number one, it means understanding in mind and in deed that giving that pleases the Savior is trusting, is worship. And then number two, it means understanding in mind and in deed that giving that pleases the Savior is trusting. This is a shorter point. Look at verse 41 again. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Did you get that? All, all that she had to live on. You know, I think we can easily detach ourselves away from that. But how would you feel if that was your mum? Or a friend? You know, one of the things I've been wrestling with this week that I want you to consider is simply this. If you had been there with this widow, just prior to her making her way to the temple treasury this day, how would you have counseled her? What would you have said to her? How many of us would have said, Oh, what a wonderful idea! (laughs) Okay, I am not numbered among that crowd. You know, this woman is incredibly vulnerable. It would appear that she has no family to care for her. She's a widow. There's no welfare state. There's no life insurance policy about to pay out at any point. No, she is profoundly vulnerable. So here's what I would have done. How would I have counseled her? Honestly. She would have come into my office. She would have said, hey, Dave, I'm thinking about giving away on Sunday all that I have. I would have said, I love your heart. Your heart is so beautiful. Have a seat. Listen, you're a widow, and we want to care for you. We want to bless you and look after you. I'm not convinced that giving away all you have is the most wisest move right now. You know, I think God would probably want you to care for yourself and, and, and aid yourself in this process. Maybe we would have gone back and forth a little bit, and she probably would have said, you know, Dave, I'm still going to give it all. Here would have been my second tactic. Well, what about just one of the coins? What about give him one and keep one? That's 50-50. That's great. And so you're blessing him. This is overwhelming. This is still half of what you have. But at least keep half, because at least get you a sandwich. At least make sure you you don't have a roof over your head like tonight. How would you have counseled her? What would you have genuinely said to her? My response would have been to counsel her to probably keep the money minimally one of the pieces of money. And yet this is the Savior's response. Guys, gather around. Look at this. Examine this. Look 
what she's doing. This is worship, and this is faith. She believes that the Father will care for her. She believes that the Father will aid her. He applauds what she is doing. He is delighted with what she is doing, because for this lady, it's not only worship, it is faith. She trusts him. See, in Luke chapter 12, this is one of those moments where Jesus talks to us about how we can trust in him, how we can put our faith in him when it comes to finances. He says this, listen, take it in for yourselves. Therefore, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do a smaller thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, then how much more will he clothe you? You know, this widow, she quietly makes her way up to the offering box this day. She fully believes that. So she gives away all that she has. Because she believes the Lord will clothe her. She believes the Lord will care for her. She believes that the Lord will feed her. She's holding on to the truth of Malachi that simply says, God himself says, test me in this. Give to me, test me in this. It's the only time in the entirety of the Bible that he says to test him. It's to do with money. You can trust me. This widow believed this. And she gave in faith and sacrifice and generosity, literally leaving herself prostrate before the Lord as a helper. She believed that he would help her. And yet the question that I think this widow leaves us with is, will you? She believed it. She believed in the God that parted the Red Sea. She believed in the God who helped David slay Goliath. She believed in the God that helped Daniel so that the lion's mouth was closed. She believed that he would care for her in all her needs. And so she makes her way up to that offering box this day. She's not mourning over it. She's just like, I'm in. I'm all in. I trust you. Do you? Will you? Here's a way you can find out whether you do or not. Look at what you've spent your money on in the last year. All that the Lord has provided you. And then tell me, does this suggest that you trust him? Only you can answer it. But be aware that his gaze is on you. My friends, maybe you're here today and you really are someone who is giving faithfully and sacrificially, and generously, in worship, and in trust towards the Lord, just like this widow. Honestly, I think that's many of you, if not most of you, if not all of you. I have no clue what you all give. But my disposition, and my maybe even naive belief, 
is that this is relating to most of us in the room. And I love that. And I want you to know, if that is you, if you do sacrifice for the Lord, you do give in faith and generosity towards Him, then thank you. Thank you for playing your part in the building of Sovereign Grace Church. We are here in part because God is using you to bless this church. That's how we're able to allow the gospel to move forward in this local church in knowing it and applying it and proclaiming it because people are coming and saying, hey, this is my gift, this is my money, I'm giving to the Lord, but what that looks like is I'm laying it at your feet. Thank you. And may you genuinely know his smile on your life today. Because I think on that last day, when you stand before the Lord, it won't just be the widow receiving the well done in this moment. His gaze will be looking on many of you as well. He said, I saw that. I saw you. Well done. If that's your story and your giving, know his pleasure on you today. But my friends, if you are here today and you don't give, or you do give, but the amount that you give in proportion to what you receive is so small. In reality, it can't even be classed, if you're honest, as faithful or sacrificial or generous. In fact, maybe if we constituted, which we're not, but if we constituted, hey, we're going to make sure a financial advisor is sitting with everybody in the church to help you with your finances, you would be deeply embarrassed about that. Because you think, if they knew how much I give, this would be Because we're saying with our one hand, Jesus is my king, I'm all in. I'm all Jesus. But I'm not trusting him with anything I have. He can have my time, but he can't have my stuff. He can have my energies, but I'm not trusting him with my treasures. My friends, he wants it all. Because where your treasure is, there is your heart. This isn't about the money. It's about your heart. Jesus himself is aware that there is one who prowls around us like a roaring lion. Satan, who wants to distract you from the greatest race you've ever been in. Here's one of the ways he does it in Sydney, time and time and time again. Get him obsessed with money. Get him distracted with stuff. Get him thinking that they won't be able to manage without the holiday and the house and the extra car and the Foxtel TV. Oh, yes. They're not even interested in the church anymore. My friends, don't be duped. Do not be duped by the lies of the enemy and the world. They are lies. I don't want you to get there on that last day and as you see Jesus' face, wonder, why did I not give it all? Why was I not all in? What was I doing? I would hate that for you. I I, I would be gutted for you. So here I am trying to faithfully preach the gospel to you because I love you. And a big part of my job is to prepare you this day for that day. If you don't give then, or if you're giving in reality in proportion to what you receive is tiny, it is not faithful or sacrificial or generous, then would grace-motivated change begin for you today? Grace-motivated Because, my friend, we are not talking about your salvation here, okay? You are forgiven of your sin. 
and adopted into the family of God and redeemed by His grace, you can know for sure that heaven is your home. And that's not dependent upon how much you give. It's all dependent upon what He gave for you at Calvary. Your salvation is all of grace from start to finish. You don't pay your sub so that you can get to heaven. That is ridiculous. That's what the Roman Catholic indulgences were all about. It is sinful. It is wrong. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But our change nonetheless needs to be grace motivated. Because Jesus is after our hearts. We can't sit in our live groups and say, you know what, yeah, I'm just not feeling it right now. I just don't think he's my greatest treasure. I want him to be, but I don't feel it. And then put our wallets away and say, you're not having that. They're linked. They're always linked. And I would be an unfaithful pastor to suggest to you any other way. The way your treasure is, there is your heart. And so what does it all mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus when it comes to our money? It means understanding in mind and deed that giving that pleases the Savior is worship. And it means understanding in mind and deed that giving, the place, giving that pleases the Savior is trusting. That's what it meant for this widow. She came into the treasury and gave it all. And my friends, 2,000 years on then, we have an opportunity to also live her example out in our lives. It's not about the money. It's about our hearts. So would we use our money to point our hearts to the greatest treasure, which is Christ? Amen? Amen. Listen, I've preached longer. It's my birthday, so don't give me a hard time. But I want you to stand together, and rather than singing, I just want to pray for you. Let's stand. Lord, you know my heart for this local church. You know my love for them, my affection for them, my desire to serve them well. Lord, did you help us then to wrestle with this message in a way that it convicts and encourages our hearts in our giving? Lord, I thank you that when we stop singing, our worship does not stop. Because our worship is all of life. And so, Lord, would you help us to ensure then that worship is all of life for us? Lord, would you guard us against the lies of the enemy that says, man, this church is just so obsessed with Jesus. What about the world? What about other stuff? Lord, would you guard our minds from that reality? Because as we read your word, we realize if we follow you, it is all about you. Each and every minute, of every hour, of every day. For all I have is yours. So Lord, would you help us then to bow our knees to you as our king, to worship you in all of life, and to trust you in all of life. And for all of us then, Lord, in mind and in deed, would we know your smile? Would we know your gaze? And would we know your smile? In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, live it out. Have a great week. Thanks, mate.